Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Chris Bagley about the new book, The Next Apocalypse, The Art and Science of Survival. In this insightful book, an underwater archaeologist and survival coach shows how understanding the collapse of civilizations can help us prepare for a troubled future. Using archaeology, survivalism, and social criticism, the next apocalypse is an essential read for anxious time. Well, Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. So how are you? How was your week? Uh, it's fine. It's, it's fine. I'm doing an archaeological field school with students, and uh, that's always really fun. Getting outside now with the weather? Yeah, that's right. So can you tell us about yourself? Well, I'm, a, I'm an archaeologist, and now I specialize in uh, maritime archaeology, underwater archaeology, um, looking at shipwrecks mainly. Uh, before that, I did a lot of archaeology in the rainforest in Honduras, and that's really where I uh, learned some of the things which are um, – which I've incorporated into another part of, of what I do, which is uh, teach wilderness survival courses. And that uh, stemmed from uh, a couple of things, just sort of the lifestyle of living uh, in and around the rainforest in uh, pretty remote areas. A lot of what we think of as survival skills are things that people do every day, starting fires, you know, building shelters and things like that. Um, and uh, I'm also a, uh, an anthropology professor here in Kentucky in the United States, uh, and I teach uh, archaeology and, um, and a few things beyond that. And how did you get interested in archaeology? Well, I think when I was a, when I was a kid, I, I knew that I wanted to do something along the lines of uh, what I saw in uh, Jacques Cousteau documentaries. Which uh, you know, for me, uh, meant uh, you would uh, do science somewhere out in the field, and uh, archaeology really was something I got interested in because of some of the archaeologists I met when I was in college um, in, here in Kentucky, which is uh, where where I'm from, where I also went to college. I um, um, I met several archaeologists in a uh, in a group that was there, sort of uh, to reach out to p- members of the public that were interested. Participated in a number of uh, archaeological digs and uh, ultimately went from there. And um, you've got a really colorful uh, career journey. So, what role did mentors or your colleagues and community play along uh, along all of this path? Well, it was 
I mean, you know, community and family are uh, really important, of course, in the direction you take. I mean, for me, um, I had the support of my family to, to do whatever I wanted. And the community really provided these opportunities uh, in the sense that we had these uh, organizations um, that allowed somebody that was interested in archaeology to participate and see what this was like. You know, uh, for most of us as archaeologists, this kind of uh, outreach or this kind of involvement of the public is really critical to what we do, and it certainly was uh, for me. And then, you know, in, in thinking about sort of fundamental um, influences, uh, the other would have been uh, all of the, my experience at, at, uh, at graduate school at the University of Chicago, where I got my doctorate, and there were really just so many people there that influenced uh, the way I think about things uh, later, um, including uh, Marshall Solins, who's one of the great anthropologists who recently died, um, to several of the archaeologists that I worked with, and of course my 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 fellow students uh, uh, ultimately as well. And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers? Well, one of the, uh, I think, the, the most important lessons that, that I've learned or that I've seen in a, a number of contexts is that it's really important uh, for you to um, be there. I mean, just being present and available and willing to do things really opens uh, doors and opportunities for you. I mean, we all have a vision of how our career might uh might evolve, but uh, there's going to be so many things that come along that uh, may not follow that sort of preset plan. That it's it's really important to 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 have a mindset where you can take advantage of that. You know, I don't know that I ever envisioned being a, a maritime archaeologist or working underwater on shipwrecks, but when the opportunity presented itself, and um, you know, and I saw that it fit in with the kinds of things I wanted to do. Uh, that ended up being a you know a great turn for my career. Oh, I love it! So your latest book, "The Next Apocalypse: The Art and Science of Survival," and how did you come to writing it? Well, in this case, I was um, interested in the way that we portrayed societal collapse in movies and books and all of the sort of, um, um, I don't know, uh, you know, media that you see. Um, and one thing that struck me was that in many of these, you had sort of uh, a protagonist that was either by themselves or with a really small group sort of trying to survive out in sort of this depopulated world. And I knew from studying how societies actually collapsed that this really was not the way that it ever happened. And the reason that that's important, I mean, you know, on one hand, so what? It's uh, stories, it's movies. Does that really matter? Well, it does matter because it sets the parameters of how we think about the future. It really orients us towards how we plan for the future, how we think about it, what sort of possibilities we imagine. And we see that in a lot of the communities that are discussing or even preparing for some sort of catastrophe. Uh, you see this emphasis on 
the individual or getting what you need for you and your family. When we really know from looking at the past that it's always a community that survives. It's always people working together. And so for me, what prompted me uh, to want to write this book was, uh, I think, it's seeing and hearing these discussions that I thought were sort of leading us astray. So let's delve into some of the science that you cover in your book, and we can start with the very basics. So what is an apocalypse? Well, that's a that's a good question, and that's uh, uh, not always that easy to define. The way that I defined it sort of loosely in, in the book was uh, sort of relatively um, rapid and dramatic change, uh, or at least it seemed rapid and dramatic and significant. Um, and in the way that I'm talking about, I'm really talking about these complex systems that make up our society uh, breaking down. Now, these could be political systems or economic systems or um, uh, agricultural systems, uh, supply chains, all of these sorts of things. You know, any of that could be uh, the, the sort of thing that would, uh, uh, that the breakdown of which would constitute the kinds of things we call uh, an apocalypse. You know, if we look at popular media, sometimes the events that cause the apocalypse in whatever movie uh, are really relatively uh, basic and minor. I, I remember one movie where, as far as I could tell, the only thing that happened was the, the, the electrical grid went down. And, you know, in this vision of the apocalypse, that, that was all it took. So for me, when I talk about the, the apocalypse, I talk about uh, or I'm thinking about the um, these complex systems that, that, that we rely on and what happens when those shut down. And when we, did we start thinking about the concept of apocalypse? Well, it, it seems like, um, you know, looking back at, at the literature, um, it's a concept that's sort of always been there, and it also seems that every generation imagines that they're on the verge of some sort of collapse. I mean, uh, that seems to be a pretty uh, common idea that, you know, things used to be okay, and now they've just gotten decadent or they've uh, declined or, or, or whatever. Um, but that concept's been around for a long time. I mean, if we look back in... Well, uh, in the well, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, for instance, uh, you know, we see these stories about uh, the apocalypse uh, uh, emerging from, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh up through stories of Noah. Um, we see this in many other religious traditions, um, you know, among the the Aztec and uh, uh, in Mesoamerica. The idea was that we were in the fifth world and the previous four had been destroyed uh, for a variety of reasons. And so this, this idea of an apocalypse is, really seems to be something that happens from, uh, from the earliest uh, documentation that we have. 
And does the apocalypse have to be kind of like a dramatic event that nobody expected for it to happen? How does it differ from a sort of natural course of the decline of the civilization? Yeah, well, that's, that's a good question. Um, and that was one of the things that, um, that, that I struggled with in uh, sort of look, deciding on which historical examples to look at and also, uh, uh, you know, what are we going to count as an apocalypse? You know, in my vision of it, it does have to be dramatic and life-changing and really represent um, a change from what was before. Uh, it doesn't have to be global in scale. You can have, uh, to some degree, these local apocalyptic events that really change what somebody uh, is going through. Uh, in some cases, even natural disasters, which are very localized and we think of as temporary, can ultimately um, be something that we might describe as apocalyptic, that really fundamentally changes uh, changes everything. Now, when we look at the historical examples, we do see that there is this slow, natural um, uh, we might call it natural decline or sort of almost inevitable decline that we see with any uh, uh, with any group. And I think that the, the thing that would differentiate uh, something that we would talk about in this way would be sort of the degree to which these systems uh, really collapsed before they were replaced or the degree to which something else sort of came into uh to take the place of the things that were um, that were declining, you know, and when we look at some of these historical examples, and, and maybe the decline of the Western Roman Empire uh, is one of the best examples of this, um, it, you know, it's very slow and gradual, and we see all of these things leading up to it uh, really for centuries before it happens. And in almost all of these cases, if we look back, we'll see these things adding up, these stressors, these things that affected these systems. We see them adding up for decades or even centuries, uh, but sometimes people don't notice them or they don't uh, quite uh, imagine that they're going to result in the sort of uh, thing that ultimately happens. So, you know, the... Uh, you know, an apocalypse can be very gradual. It might seem very sudden if you weren't paying attention to all the things that were happening. Um, but, but uh, uh, you, you know, I think that the key is to what degree have uh, uh, has everything changed and how dramatically and how rapidly would that change seem to the people that are there. So do we consider the fall of Roman Empire as an apocalyptic event? Uh, do we need to look at it like retroactively or did people understand what was going on? Yeah, I think, um, I think you know, one of the reasons I use that as an example is to suggest that in our popular narratives, this sudden change that precipitates these dramatic events is really not the way that things change. And when we look back at how they change, it is gradual. They, there are uh, things leading up to it for decades or even um, even centuries. And 
you know, something like uh, the the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, I probably would not think of it as an apocalyptic event, certainly for most people. And of course, the other part of that is, who are you talking about in the Western Roman Empire? Are you talking about somebody that lives in Rome? Are you talking about somebody on the outskirts of the empire in North Africa, for instance? Um, And how is this change going to affect them? Uh, You know, it could be profound for one group. It could be relatively uh, less profound for uh, another group. So one of the things that that, uh, I saw looking back on these examples is that these things are rarely homogenous or homogeneous across an area. It really affects different people in different ways. So what other examples from history really impress you? Well, there are uh, the the three examples that I looked at were uh, examples that related to some of the archaeological work I'd done. Um, I've done some underwater archaeology in the Mediterranean, and uh, so that was uh, partly why I looked at the, the the collapse of the Roman Empire, the decline of the Roman Empire. I also looked at uh, one of the uh, events that we often talk about as a collapse, which is the uh, the classic Maya in the um, ninth century um, AD. There were real changes in, across the area that were inhabited by the Maya, which included <clears throat> parts of Mexico, parts of uh, Guatemala, what's now Belize, um, uh, El Salvador, and Honduras. And we see in uh, s- some of that area that you have um, evidence of drought, you have evidence of deforestation, uh, you have uh, evidence of real population decline at some of these uh, cities. And um, it's often talked about as the collapse of the, of the classic Maya. When you look more closely, however, we see that it, is re- it really depends on where you're looking uh, and when and which part of society, what your role is, what your position is in the group could radically shape how these changes affect you. For instance, if you're a farmer that lives on the outskirts of one of these cities and the political and economic system that are supporting the cities and the elites, the royalty that live there, if that collapses for your uh, in in your experience as a as a relatively rural farmer, uh, the transition to something new may be less dramatic than if you are a member of the royal family whose political system has collapsed. Um, so this uh, experience with the classic Maya was one that really impressed me, uh, in the sense that we talk about it as. Uh, sort of a classic apocalyptic situation. Something happened and all of these Mayan cities collapsed. When we really look at the details, we see that, in fact, uh, it's much different than that. Um, So that was one. 
Another one that really impressed me or had a big impact on my way of thinking about these things was what happened in uh, North America when Europeans arrived and the, uh, there were a number of factors that created a huge population decline uh, in the Americas. Now, the big one, of course, was the introduction of diseases. Uh, influenza, smallpox, um, a whole host of others that really um, impacted the indigenous population here in the Americas. Uh, they, uh, those diseases weren't present here, and uh, and and they affected people in in di- in uh, ways that were different from Europeans that had had many of these diseases as as children. Uh, when when they were often less uh, less harmful or less dramatic, and in this case we see that the population within a hundred years would decline by ninety or ninety five percent, and certainly in anybody's book that's going to be apocalyptic. Um, and not only did they decline over the course of a century, often this decline was really rapid with the with waves of disease that would come through. We have accounts here from Kentucky, for instance, of um, something like 75% of a village dying over the course of a winter. So this was dramatic. It was truly apocalyptic, uh, you know, if anything is ever apocalyptic. But even in these situations, uh, we see that people banded together They created uh, communities, even in the face of their original community being largely destroyed. Um, We saw the development of, for instance, multi-ethnic communities, uh, remnants of different groups that had formerly lived separately that uh, collated into a new community. Um, And so the, the way in which people survived these dramatic impacts uh, in this situation, in probably the closest thing to uh, a true apocalypse that uh, that we've seen, uh, really drove home to me the importance of community and just how it is that people uh, are going to survive these type, types of events. So is the concept of apocalypse necessarily a human-directed phenomena, or can it be also thought uh, when, it, when it comes in relation to animals, for example? So if we, if we think about the meteorite that contributed to the demise of dinosaurs, can this also be constructed as an ap- apocalyptic event? Oh, well, I think, I think it you certainly could. Um... Now, the, you know, if we return to sort of my definition of these complex systems collapsing, you know, maybe that wouldn't be the right way to think about those examples. Um, but certainly, you know, in the case of uh, dinosaurs, for instance, uh, there were these, uh, you know, everything collapsed. Their food sources, their, uh, um, you know, the, the normal environment in which they were going to, uh, in which they lived, you know, would be affected, of course, by the uh, decreased uh, sunlight and all of this. And so, yeah, I think for um, we certainly can. And I think that the um, uh, 
you know, thinking about it in terms of dramatic, significant change that really disrupts these critical systems, you know, probably works uh, pretty much across the board. And coming to today's world, so what kind of apocalypses are there or how do we think about them nowadays? Well, one of the, you know, like I mentioned, one of the things that uh, prompted me to write this book was uh, looking at our popular media representations uh, of, an, of an apocalypse. And not only did, the, did these popular representations seem to be problematic in terms of not looking like any sort of historical example, uh, they were also problematic in that they seemed to not really capture what was going on and what, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others, are the potentially apocalyptic types of events that we're seeing. Um, the big one for me, uh, uh, and I think for most people, is uh, climate change. I mean, the way in which uh, things are changing is go- just going to create um, incredible stress on any number of systems. Uh, in fact, we already, you know, we already see this in terms of how people are responding politically. Sometimes how uh, people are being uh, uh, well disrupted, or they're being uh, uh, dislocated by uh, some of these changes. One of the things about the uh, apocalyptic narratives that we create, the fictional stories, uh, is that the the way to resolve these in those fictional stories is by some sort of dramatic heroic action. Mm. You know, you have the hero that shows up and against all odds comes up with the solutions. Well, something as complex and multifaceted as... Uh, climate change um, is not going to be solved by uh, by a singular hero. It's not going to be solved by quick, dramatic action. It's going to be solved by all of us doing the hard, slow work, the decidedly non-cinematic work of uh, reducing your footprint, reducing consumption, changing ways in which we... Um, uh, in which we move ourselves around, in which we live, etc. And so, um, you know, one of the things when we when I, when I look at what's going on today is is that we have these situations that have been building up for a long time. I mean, if we take climate change, that's uh, you know one of the earliest uh, writing about it that I've seen is from 1912. So that's, you know, 110 years ago, people were already wondering about the effects of fossil fuels on the environment. Uh, Certainly by the 1970s, the potential for this kind of effect was widely discussed. And, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, uh, there were many people trying to raise the alarm. And it really has been maybe in the last five or 10 years, I think, that uh, most people are seeing these um, uh, these signs that something's happening. And so, 
you know, there's a, there's this need for, uh, uh, I think an understanding of how solutions are, are going to look and that they're not going to look like these dramatic heroic solutions that we see in the movies and in the books. So when the pandemic just started, one of the things that many people sort of got acquainted with is was this uh, term survivalism. And we heard stories of people who tend to do these survival uh, stuff, I don't know, as a hobby, for example. So can you explain what is it and how did this start? Yeah, and, and of course, and, and, and I'll return to the, the pandemic because that, of course, is uh, a great lesson for uh, for us uh, in terms of the importance of how we think about these things. Um, survivalism or survivalists uh, are also sometimes called preppers, people that are preparing for uh, the uh, this apocalypse. And there's really a whole variety of types of this. I mean, I teach courses in what I would call wilderness skills or bushcraft which are really focused on what happens if you get lost in the woods? How do you, uh, how do you keep yourself safe and find your way home over the course of a few days or a week? Right. Um, but the, the type of, of thing that you're talking about are the people that are really preparing for everything to collapse. Uh, this involves, um, well, I guess it's different uh, depending on who you're talking about, but often it involves stockpiling things like food and supplies. Uh, sometimes it involves getting knowledge of what we might call traditional or primitive skills. Um, you know, how do you do things if you don't have some of the modern um, conveniences, I guess, like electricity, or if you don't, if you're unable to do them in the ways that we do them, how did people do it before? Um, those sorts of things. Uh, in Here in the United States, one element of this often involves uh, uh, weapons and arming yourself and preparing to defend against people that are unprepared or want to come and take your stuff, I guess. Um, all of this is really uh, problematic when we think about the ways in which things really change. Um, first of all, it really is focused on sort of this individual preparedness. Now, there's nothing wrong with being prepared, and certainly uh, there's going to be a time period, a few days or weeks, uh, even when um, when all of these sorts of uh, you know survival skills and survival preparations will be will be important. Um, but ultimately, that's no solution. Those aren't really going to be the ways in which we recover. Uh, we need to figure out how to produce food and how to distribute it and how to educate people and how to uh, provide you know, medical care and education and all of the things that we want for our kids in the face of these things uh, shutting down. And so this stockpiling of materials and certain kinds of skills uh, aren't a sufficient uh, solution. And I think we saw that a lot with the pandemic. You know, we, during the pandemic, or 
you know, the, the best thing you could do was to sort of just stay home, you know? Um, and I know, uh, you know, one of my students said something like, you know, well, this is the kind of thing you've been preparing for. And it was like, well, not actually at all, because, you know, in, in this case, none of the skills that I teach or have really helped. I mean, uh, you know, the problem wasn't that we didn't know how to start a fire in the rain or that we didn't know how to, you know, purify water. Um, the problem was that we just couldn't stay home and, uh, you know, protect ourselves and our community. Or in the case here uh, in the United States where it became very political very quickly. So your reaction to the pandemic um, was based often on where you fell in the political spectrum rather than the advice you would get from public health uh, experts. And so, you know, we really see this, uh, the, these factors coming into play that suggest that we don't have a good idea of what these things are going to look like, what uh, significant disruption looks like. Because, you know, I would not have predicted that one of the big challenges was, um, you know, half the population refusing to wear masks or get vaccinated um, or acknowledge that there was a problem, uh, you know, with the, with the virus, that it truly was more than just the flu or a cold. Um, and so, you know, we, uh, I think the, the pandemic really, showed uh, uh, the power of the stories that we tell ourselves and how that affects how we react or we don't react. So are there sort of core sets of skills that all of us should really have for situations like that? And that includes the skills, interpersonal skills as well. So caring for your neighbor, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I think that the kinds of sort of wilderness survival skills that I would teach, uh, how to build a fire, how to build a shelter, how to find the cleanest waters possible, how to find your way home, all of those things could come into play and could be important. And I think, you know, everybody could benefit from those skills in just daily life. Um or the situations that are likely to come up. Um, you know, I mean, it could be as simple as your car breaking down at night somewhere where you're going to have to spend a night out. Uh, you know, so those are some skills. But when we really think about uh, the, the types of things that are going to be important if these dramatic, really dramatic changes happen, uh, sort of like we saw with the pandemic, um, you're right. It's going to be interpersonal skills and political skills. And, and here are a couple that I think are particularly important. One, it's really important that we be able to evaluate the information that we're given. Is this propaganda? Is it trustworthy? Are statistics being used correctly? Can I um, trust that the conclusion that have been drawn is a proper conclusion or that really follows from the data because sometimes it's not, you know, we mistake uh, 
correlation for causality. We use statistics in the wrong way. We um, we are given uh, you know a certain spin on something. And it's important for us as consumers of information that we have the critical thinking skills uh, to be able to evaluate this. Um, now, I know that sounds like a college professor talking, which I am, but it, it, it is ultimately uh, very important. Another really important thing is to know who to listen to. One of the phenomena that we see is sort of this rejection of expertise, um, this idea that uh, we're not going to listen to these experts. And in, on one hand, uh, I think that's good. It's certainly good to question the advice you're getting. It's certainly good to look at whether or not there is real expertise there. But it's important to understand, in the, especially in the face of competing information, who we should listen to. If somebody says, you should wear a mask. If somebody says, you don't need to wear a mask. Who am I going to listen to? Who has the expertise? Who studied these things? Who is uh, uh, less likely to be giving me some sort of uh, propaganda or spin? that is meant to serve some other purpose. All of this, uh, you know, you could probably lump all of that under critical thinking skills are going to be incredibly important. I think uh, another part of this would be um, empathy, really. Uh, Part of what always happens when there is new needs introduced into a community is that things are going to be unequally distributed. Maybe you've, uh, you had the resources to stockpile a bunch of food. Uh, I know many people that couldn't do that because they're struggling to just pay for the basics of, uh, of everyday life or they don't have room to do that. Um, So there are many reasons why in the face of new needs, you're going to have people at different, in different situations. And it's going to be critically important that we're able to um, empathize and not, I don't know, reject, reject somebody's need as, somebody that failed to prepare. And this is something we see in a lot of the literature, Um, you know, protect your stuff because those that have failed to prepare will come get it as if they're uh, somehow at fault for failing to prepare. Now they could be at fault uh, in one sense, but it could be that it was an impossible task given their economic situation, given their living situation, given given any number of, of, attributes that their life, um, uh, that impact their life that, that we don't know about. So empathy will be important. And uh, along with that, uh, generosity. I mean, this really going to be, um, uh, in the case of, you know, dramatic change, like you see, you know, after a natural disaster, uh, this sort of uh, caring for the community rather than your small group is also going to be critical. 
because ultimately um, we're not going to be able to survive as little groups that are sort of stockpiling their stuff. So if I think of other skills that are in, uh, that are critically important would be uh, the critical thinking skills, this sort of empathy and generosity. And I guess maybe if I added one last one, it would be flexibility. Uh, when things change, it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, I mean, think about our discussions or our experience with um, you know, a new global, globally interconnected world where we're suddenly living in proximity with people that come from really different backgrounds, situations, tradi- traditions than us. Um, you know, for many of us, that's great and it's exciting and it's, uh, and, and th- that's the sort of thing we love about living in, in a city, for instance. Uh, but in other cases, it can be uncomfortable. There can be uh, different ideas about, um, I don't know, gender roles or sexuality or personal space or how how you talk to other people. Um, you know, I'm from uh, the southern United States. We are very indirect in the way we talk uh, to people. Uh, We often buffer our conversations with all kinds of small talk and other things. Um, There are people in other parts of the country and other parts of the world that are not like that at all. And from one perspective, it might seem like some people are being rude. Or from another perspective, it might seem like people are taking forever to get to the point. And so we will see that there's going to be uh, a great degree of, uh, of, uh, of potentially uncomfortable situations, you know, where we have to adapt to living in, in these new situations in ways that may not be uh, what we're used to. And, you know, that could be how much space does each person have? Who lives in a house together? Uh, what do you eat? Uh, how much do you eat? What sort of, you know, uh, mobility are you able to have? Uh, you know, some of us are used to traveling a lot. And it could be that there's situations where that's just not feasible anymore, where it's not advisable, or it's using up resources in ways that we, we don't need to use them. And so uh, I think this flexibility uh, is going to be critically important, too. I can see the title for the next survivalist book, something like How to Grow Tomatoes in Your Balcony or Veranda and How to Speak to Your Conspiratorial Uncle Without Losing Your Mind as well as how to sw- how to share the sourdough starter with your neighbor with the just right amount of the small talk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds uh, uh, um, like those things may not be that important, right? Certainly not as important as, you know, uh, staying warm or, or staying hydrated. But any of us that have lived in... Um, uh, in a place that you didn't grow up in, know that that ends up being your, your day-to-day experience, right? Where uh, there are 
things that are challenges for you in this new place because the food's different. Uh, the you know what is considered appropriate music volume at what time of the morning. You know those things are all different in different places, and it's um, uh, you know it's easy to react in a way that uh, that doesn't reflect the intent of the other person. So I think you that uh, you're absolutely right. These sorts of uh, uh, interpersonal uh, skills, I guess, or this uh, this flexibility and this empathy are going to be very, very important uh, when we're trying to get, get along in a new reality. So thinking about the apocalyptic events, I think you already mentioned a little bit. So are they always bad or what kind of good can they bring if there is anything? Yeah, that's a very good question, a very good point. Uh, no, they're not always bad at all. And in fact, let's think about these systems that collapsed, right? If we think about something like, I don't know, an agricultural system collapsing and people not being able to eat, it's certainly difficult to imagine that being a good thing. But if we think about other types of systems, social systems or political systems, um, they could be very good for some people. I mean, I think that, you know, if we look back at the, uh, I don't know, the collapse of the Third Reich, the Nazi Germany, you know, no one laments or most people don't lament the fact that that, uh, that, that collapsed. Uh, and it was certainly good. Uh, a system that is strongly classist or a caste system or a system where people where power and resources are unequally distributed because of race or gender or sexuality you could imagine that um, those sorts of systems when they fail would be liberating for people and we certainly see that uh in the past. And in fact, in our imagination of an apocalyptic event, uh, we often think about this sort of um, uh, freedom. You know, one of the things I look at in the book is why do we think about this so much? Why, why are there so many apocalyptic novels or dystopian novels? I mean, if you go to the, you know, the young adult section in a bookstore, books for teenagers. So many of them are dystopian futures. Um, and I realize that's slightly different than an apocalypse, but it's still this uh, representing this change into something, you know, challenging and, and, uh, uh, and, and difficult on one level. But we see that on another level, it does free people in, in this imagination from the yokes that currently tie them down. Maybe it's that you're getting out from under, I don't know, student loans or other sort of debt or um, uh, a system where you're oppressed because of your gender or because of your sexuality. And so this, this sort of, uh, freedom when everything collapses is part of our uh, fantasy uh, of how these things might happen. I think that 
we might overestimate the degree to which it would be uh, uh, would be a, a positive thing in most cases, but undoubtedly there are systems that if they collapsed, even in the face of all these challenges, uh, would have to be considered a good thing, at least for some segments of the population. So, of course, something like this is really difficult to, to foresee, but what kind of things could we possibly expect for the future? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things that I think we're already seeing, and I think the pose uh real challenges and could really represent the way in which uh, things collapse in, in the future. Um, the the first and the biggest one is climate change. I mean this uh, uh, is going to be so profound uh, and and create such dramatic and and I imagine unexpected, uh, changes that uh, that I suspect that will cause the collapse of many systems that we see today. It's things are going to have to change, um, and since we do not seem to have the political will to sort of change things uh, preemptively, um, you know, uh, that to me seems like where we're going to see. Uh, the real issues uh, coming from. But of course, like all of these historical examples, you might have some cause that sets the, the, the whole thing in motion. But then we see that there are many, many ways in which that manifests itself. So for instance, um, we see the rise now of authoritarianism in many places. Um you know, strongly uh, authoritarian right-wing governments, uh, you know, in the U.S., in England, in, in Turkey. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, examples of this. And, of course, people remember uh, or uh, uh, either uh, remember or reference, uh, uh, you know, the 1930s and the rise of fascism and, and the ways in which these other things, the the pressures from, you know, arising from the Treaty of Versailles or from the Great Depression that, uh, that made some of these radical choices seem reasonable. We see similar things there. So I would say the second uh, biggest threat is uh, authoritarianism, uh, where we're just going to see, um, you know, th- uh, things change uh, on a political uh, level. Um, you know, and I think if I had to, to think about a, a sort of a third thing, it's going to be, um, you know, technology and sort of the interconnectedness uh, uh, that we have that change things in unpredictable ways. I mean, look at the influence of uh, social media on on really on everything from our interpersonal relationships to uh, the outcome of elections. Uh, look at the way in which it all, fu- it all played into the Arab spring, mm. um, you know, 10 years ago, uh, no one would have predicted that it was, you know, the, uh, the presence of these sort of social media apps or of cell phones or of 
ways to stay connected that would have enabled things to happen that hadn't been able to happen before. So I think that, um, uh, you know, there, there certainly could be changes coming from this that we, that we don't see, that we don't see happening. Are there any ways that you see that we can use or uh, what we can do to address at least some of those issues that um, you brought forth? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, well, climate change would be the, the biggest one. Um, I'm not sure how to make that happen. I mean, um, obviously making people aware of the problem is, is a key component of that, but it seems like, Uh, even in the face of having done that pretty uh, pretty effectively and significantly, uh, we still have a lack of action uh, on, uh, uh, on, on, on many of those issues. Um, in some cases, it's going to take either centralized uh, action, that is a, a government that has the authority to um, mandate certain changes, Of course, that's hard to do, um, you know, especially in a, in a democracy where you have uh, competing factions that, uh, you know, that are able to change the government. Uh, and so that's, um, you know, that's going to be a challenge. I think that the key is uh, really going to be the development of some of these critical skills, the critical thinking skills, the evaluation of, of information, and the ability to identify and listen to experts. Um, you know, I think, you know, maybe another important part of this is to emphasize our position as members of a community. One of the things that we often see, I mean, we certainly experience this in, in many places, is um, This phenomena where, you know, everybody wants to be the leader or the hero or the an important part in how things change. And they want to, um, you know, create new organizations and new movements and such. And all of that is important. However, it's also important to remember that you're part of a group that might be uh, following some of this stuff. So it's really important to be a good, to know how to be a good community member, to know how to be a good follower as well. Um, you know, especially in certain parts of the world, like the United States, where we have this mythical history um, where we think of ourselves as uh, sort of self-sufficient and independent, and we value the individual with initiative and even sort of the outlaws and the mavericks that uh, that live on the outskirts of society. I mean, those are those have always been our heroes here and uh, in, in many other parts of the world, too. You know, but I would say especially in places like this, uh, we need to understand that we are part of a community and our how we behave as part of the community is really going to affect uh, these outcomes. So thinking about the bigger picture, so are you optimistic that our society has the ability and potential to reach these goals? No, <laughs> not, not, 
Not that we (laughs) – I see a way in which we might reach these goals at a certain time, which would minimize some of the impacts, things like climate change. Um, I think we're not going to do that. And so we're going to be faced with uh, sort of cleaning up after the fact, which, you know, is much harder. Um, But, yeah, I think that – I mean, one of the things that – gives me hope are young people that I talk to. I mean, I, uh, uh, I teach in university. Uh, my students, uh, for the most part, are, say, 18 to 22 years old. And I'm really impressed with uh, many of these uh, people. I mean, we, you know, in the media, we're bombarded with this constant criticism of, you know, Gen Zs or or whichever young group we're going to complain about that they, you know, won't get off their video games or social media. Well, that's just not the reality that I see when I talk to young people. They are engaged and they care and they know about this stuff and they're not going to accept some of the things that uh, people of my generation, the Gen Xers, for instance, um, have lived under our entire lives. And so I do see hope there. And, uh, you know, I hope that it really manifests itself in, in some meaningful change. And what discoveries in your research for your book, The Next Apocalypse, surprised you the most? Um, I would say what uh, surprised me the most was um, re- well, it, you know, I, I, the, I divide the book into three parts, looking at the past, the present, uh, and then the future, uh, which, of course, is more speculation. But uh, one of the things that was really surprising was looking at the present and how common or how prevalent or how ubiquitous, really, some of these ideas about the future were and the ways in which our vision of a future apocalypse, a vision that we get from these fictional accounts, really shaped the way in which we were preparing for it. I mean, um, and you know, you see that with the people stockpiling food and all this, and really not working on the things as much that are really going to be important. Um, developing flexible systems, developing uh, connections within the community uh, that are going to be able to help us uh, uh, withstand the the collapse of some of these big systems, uh, you know, if if that comes to pass. That, I think, for me, was probably the most surprising. And if you were to write a fiction about apocalypse and post apocalyptic future, what would that be? some kind of space uh, uh, super technology or cyberpunk. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I understand that, you know, uh, we write these, uh, uh, these narratives in certain ways because that's what's entertaining or that's what we want to read. You know, no one would want to read the, your apocalyptic story about, you know, the pandemic where everybody stayed home and, minimize their contact with people. You know, it's not very cinematic. It's not very exciting. 
In fact, if we look at like the 1918 uh, uh, pandemic with the, the flu, influenza, uh, we don't see a lot of books written about that because it wasn't very dramatic and heroic. I mean, it was dramatic in the sense of, uh, you know, a lot of people died from this, but the, the solutions to it were um, very similar to the solutions we found uh, during this one. So if I'm, you know, if I were writing one about the uh, future apocalypse, you know, especially if I were writing it to try to provide an example for people, I think I would write it uh, with um, really people uh, coming together as a community and being flexible and doing the kinds of things they need to do to, uh, to get through this. Well, this has been truly a thought-provoking discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Yeah, well, right now, uh, this whole thing has led me to think about the ways in which some of these situations came about. In my next uh, book that that, uh, that I'm uh, in in the process of really conceiving at this moment, um, I want to look at the, the... the beginnings of our dependence on fossil fuel and how that shaped things like climate change. Uh, And once again, I'll be using uh, um, my experience as an archaeologist and some of the things I've worked on there uh, to frame that story. Uh, So, um, you know, something that really looks back into the 19th century and looks at how this stuff developed. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Well, um, the best way to find that would be to visit uh, my website, which is chrisbegley.com. It has some information about me. It has uh, information about my book uh, and and also a number of essays that I've written on this and other topics. my book, The Next Apocalypse, The Art and Science of Survival, is uh, available as a, uh, as a physical book, as an e-book, uh, and as an audio book. And that is on uh, uh, pretty much any online uh, platform or in your brick-and-mortar uh, bookstores. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much.